providence, he's worked out to where this is a really great text that is just continuing on in what we've been going through in the book of Hebrews to use for our Easter sermon. So Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 is where we're going to be this morning. As we start, if you've not been with us before or you've not heard many sermons as we've gone through this series together, just know that we're looking at Christ. That's what the author of Hebrews does, and so that's what we're doing. We're looking at Christ. And so hopefully we can see Him fully for who He is as our great high priest this morning. So Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14, says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. What a great passage. Um, So much to go through this morning. Look back at verse 14. Since then, this is actually a new section in Hebrews. It's sort of hard to see that oftentimes as we go through God's Word and and different books to know when there's a break and all of a sudden there's a a transition that's happened. But some of those words, these words since then, looks back to what we've just talked about and looks forward to what we're going to talk about now. And so this is a bit of a transition into talking about Jesus as our high priest. This has already actually been brought up in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. Starting in verse 17, says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So we see already that this is not a new topic that has been brought up for us in the book of Hebrews, but this is something that we are now transitioning into, and we'll continue looking at next week as we look at chapter 5. And so since then, and since then is not just the fact that he has already been mentioned as our high priest, but last week we talked about entering into God's rest, knowing that God has done the work that we could not do and that we are simply to rest in his work. And resting in his work does mean that there are things for us to do. God's not just called us to be robots who who passively sit there and wait for him to act upon us but He has called us to act as His people. And we act as His people not so that we can be made right with Him, but so that we can show that we have been made right with Him through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And this is the great news for us that we're able to celebrate and rest in. And so since then, we know that we can enter that rest because of the work that He's done. We look again at the fact that He was our great high priest, He's not just a high priest, but he's our great high priest. There is something unique about Jesus Christ that makes him different from every other high priest that ever was. The high priest was mentioned when we read in Matthew 26, Caiaphas. He was the high priest at the time of Jesus' crucifixion. But Jesus was not like Caiaphas. Jesus was not like Aaron. Jesus was not like all of the other high priests that were to be found in the Old and New Testaments. And and for the readers of 
this letter to the Hebrews, to these Jewish people, they would have known all about what a high priest was and what he did and how important that role was. And so what makes Jesus especially important is that he now acts as that high priest forever. What's interesting is in the, in the Jewish um, religion, note that, I mean, after the temple was destroyed around 70 AD, that there have been no more sacrifices. This is what the high priest was to do. Not just regular sacrifices, but especially the once a year day of atonement sacrifices, what made the high priest's position and his role so important and special. Because once a year, what he was to do was to represent all of Israel, all of God's people, so that he could make atonement for them through the sacrifice, and he would enter into the temple, but not just the temple, but the innermost part of the temple, the part of the temple that only once a year was one man allowed to enter, and that was the high priest. And he was allowed to enter because that's what God had decreed, because God's presence, God wanted to make it clear that his glory and his presence was so unique and so special that it cost something to be in his presence, and it cost a sacrifice because we are unholy and God is holy. And so there needs to be some sort of mediation to bring the two parties together. And the high priest was the one who would do that once a year. But what's so special about Jesus being our great high priest is the fact that he is not just our great high priest here on this earth, but now he is our great high priest because he has passed through the heavens. He's not just here and now, but he's also there and then. He is in the heavens, in front of God himself, mediating for us day after day because of his once and for all sacrifice on our behalf. As we look at the resurrection, as we look at the story of Jesus' death, we can turn back to Matthew and look at Matthew chapter 27, I believe. I have this written down somewhere. But look at Matthew, and we see how interesting it is, and I'm sure many of us have seen this before, but in Matthew 27, after Jesus dies, it is so interesting at that moment, as Matthew records it, the thing that separates the area where only the, great, or where only the high priest could go, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place in the temple, that was separate and was separated by a curtain, how this was actually removed for us immediately upon Jesus' death. So look at Matthew chapter 27, and I'm just going to start reading in verse 45. And notice how it, Jesus dies and immediately something happens with that curtain. Verse 45 of Matthew 27, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying something in, in Hebrew. <laughs> that is, as we translate it, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Taken from the Psalms. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus died. And what happens in verse 51? As Matthew records for us, 
And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, he doesn't say, and Jesus died, and then all of a sudden, you know, the guards came and took his body away and laid him in the tomb. No, the, the next most important thing for Matthew, himself writing to a Jewish audience, as we are looking at in the book of Hebrews, a Jewish audience, Jewish Christians, it were, the most important thing for him to state immediately upon Jesus' death was that the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And what did that mean? It means that now there is a different access that is had between God's people and God himself. And that access is now Jesus Christ. It is not dependent on some human high priest, but it is now dependent on he who is God and he who is man, both at the same time, fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ himself. He has taken away that level of separation that God had made, And now he has made us be able to have an even closer relationship with him. One that is no longer dependent on us sacrificing to him day after day, year after year. Sacrifices that never really accomplished anything other than to appease God's wrath for a time. Instead, Jesus has taken upon himself the wrath of God fully and finally for all of us. So that we can have a relationship with God rightly through the person and work of the God-man, Jesus Christ, of that great high priest. And he doesn't just do that on earth, but now he is that great high priest in God's presence in heaven constantly all the time. We don't have a physical, actual temple that we go to here on earth anymore. That is how it was in the Old Testament, because God wanted to show how serious he was about sin, and God wanted to show how serious he was about his own holiness. But through the person and work of Jesus Christ, now he has made a way for us to be able to access him constantly. And that's what we're talking about in these verses in Hebrews chapter 4. How great and wonderful it is that Jesus, the Son of God, how Jesus, his human name, his humanity, and Jesus, the Son of God, his divinity, how he is God, he is fully man and he is fully God, how he has passed through the heavens like none of the rest of us can. And now he is there at God's right hand. And so it tells us, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So what are we supposed to do from that as he's talking to us? We're supposed to rest in that. Since then we know God's rest. Since then we can look at Jesus, our great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Well, what's our confession? I mean, our confession is basically our initial belief, but it's not just our initial belief, it's our continued understanding of who He is and what He has done. The students, as they've been going through the Apostles' Creed, um, they've been looking at it week after week, looking at phrases and understanding what the Apostles' Creed is. And maybe the Apostles' Creed is a great representation of a particular confession that we can make that show what we believe and that give a good idea of the breadth and the depth of the truths that we proclaim as Christians. And so I'll just read for you one version of the Apostles' Creed. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, 
I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's an example that's over 1,600 years old. From early Christianity, what was given to us as a representation of what a confession is. Now, we don't have to have that exact confession to be able to know God or to come into a relationship with God. As Nathaniel said earlier, it's not some six-word magic phrase that we have to say in order to be right with God or some magic phrase that we have to pray. But there is some truth that is to be known in order for us to truly understand and recognize who God is, who His Son is, and who we are, and that we're in need of that sacrifice that He has made on the cross in His body for us. And that He had the power to be able to give us the confession that we now have because He was raised from the dead. And so let us hold fast our confession. The book of Hebrews is wrought with warnings. And they're warnings because day after day, there is a level of guilt and shame and knowing that we are still sinners. Even though we have a relationship with God as Christians, we still sin. And we don't do the right thing. We turn to our own way time and time again. And so there's a level of guilt and shame that we are going to have available to us to live in day after day. But what he calls us to, this author, is to hold fast our confession and to remember that that guilt and shame has been taken care of, that we don't have to actually live in that guilt and shame, that we have been forgiven, that we can live in that forgiveness, and that we can actually live in that forgiveness. We're alive because he lives. That's what we sang earlier. We have life because He is alive. And our life is evident in the fact that we don't just mourn around and, oh man, I'm, I'm such a horrible person. And, oh, another mistake. Oh, you know, well, I did that again. Or I went back to that old same pattern of living for a while. And, and all the while, I think it's why it's so great that we have opportunities to testify and to share our lives with one another because we can see in each other's lives how God has been patient with us. As Nathaniel said earlier, he's been patient with us where he knows our weaknesses. He is able to sympathize with us. And that's what we continue reading on. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is more than just a feeling. It's an experience of suffering. He has encountered sin firsthand. In his body, he has experienced the effects of sin. Not because he sinned, he couldn't sin. And maybe because he couldn't sin, we automatically think, well, he doesn't really know what it's like then to have to live in sin. 
to have to deal with the consequences of making poor decisions that were sinful, of always thinking about myself and putting myself above everyone else. He doesn't know what that's like. We can use that excuse. We can say he didn't sin and so he doesn't fully get it. But to the contrary, I think it's important for us to recognize that as we continue reading in verse 15, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He has experienced that testing, that temptation. Read Matthew chapter 4, and you see how after having fasted for 40 days, Jesus was hungry and thirsty. And at that moment, in his physical weakest, the devil approached him and tempted him. And I think why we can look to Jesus as actually having experienced the fullness of suffering is because since he could not sin, he was stretched to the max. You see, when we're tempted, usually at a certain point, we find our breaking point. But Jesus didn't have a breaking point to give in. He had to take the fullness of the brunt of that temptation, the fullness of the brunt of that suffering. And so his inability to sin actually speaks volumes to the fact that he endured to the uttermost what it was like to be tempted completely. You see, we're tempted, but we oftentimes don't have to be tempted completely. Sometimes we've got pet sins that we like, pet sins that we've gotten used to. And it doesn't take much for us to see, you know, that thing just sitting there and, well, you know, I mean, okay, no, no, not right now. But we come back to it five minutes later and it's still sitting there and we're like, okay, I'll pick it up. But Jesus, it, it, it was there for him the whole time. We read through the Gospels and you get this picture of time and time again, people letting Jesus down. Time and time again, Satan entering into people. Satan's ideas entering into people and constantly confronting Jesus to the point where we see Jesus having to say to Peter, his own, one of the best disciples, say, get behind me, Satan. And he's saying that because the ideas that were in Peter's mind were to keep Jesus from going to the full extent of the suffering that was planned for him. Peter said, what? No, you're not going to have to go to the cross and die. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how it's going to work. And Jesus says, that's exactly why I've came. And so any ideas that are going to put me off from that, I need to leave behind. Because this is who I am and what I have come for. I've come for this purpose, to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that you deserved and to be raised to show that it meant something, that I did have the power to take all of that wrath, all of that shame, all of that guilt upon myself, in my body, on that tree, for you, for me. That's what he has done. And, and he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he's been in every respect tempted as we are. And he has overcome those things. He is the one who has overcome those things. And so when we're looking to overcome, it's easy to depend on ourselves. It's easy to look to ourselves to grit it out. It's easy to look to ourselves to do all the work. But I think that's why it's so important that he has just, this author in Hebrews, has just talked about God's rest. We can't do the work. And so stop trying to do the work. 
Jesus has done the work, and so rest in Him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. For His yoke is easy, His burden is light. He knows what it's like, He understands, and He puts His arms around us and says, Walk with me. What an amazing opportunity that we have then. And from that knowledge, we're told then to with confidence, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Look back at verses 11 through 13 there in chapter 4. And I want us to see how we have moved from an idea of judgment, an idea of God being able to see everything and Christ knowing all, nothing being able to be hidden from His sight. And that idea we talked about last week of just being scared of the fact that we can't hide anything from God, knowing that God is going to judge us, knowing that God is a judge. Look at verses 11 through 13. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God, it's not just the Bible here. This is talking about Jesus himself. For the word of God is living and active. See, already we, we see that Jesus was raised from the dead. He's living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. God is going to judge us. We're going to have to give an account for all that we do. Nothing is hidden from him. And so we might think initially, man, this is scary. This is not a good place for me to be. I've got no hope. But we've got a great high priest who allows us, because of what he has done, to let us with confidence draw near, not to the throne of judgment, but to the throne of grace. God is a judge, yes, but he is also a God who is gracious and merciful, as we call it here at the vine. He's merciful. God is gracious. God is merciful. And so his throne isn't described as one, as a throne of judgment. His throne is described as a throne of grace. Yes, we will have to give an account. But yes, he does care for us to the point where he invites us to come to him. And not just a one-time come to Him. Not just an initial say your prayer and do your whatever you need to do to come into a right relationship with Him. It's a constant. You can always come to Him. This throne of grace is not just a once and then good luck living the rest of your life figuring it out on your own. This is a constant since Jesus, our great high priest, has passed through the heavens and is now at the right hand of God. He is there constantly for us to allow us to be able with confidence, with boldness, to come to God, asking Him to give us help in our time of need. Now, when are we in need? I mean, if we're honest, we're always in need. If I'm honest, I'm always in need. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're just like way better than I am, and you probably are. But I would reckon to say that you are still in need of help constantly. Because I know myself, and I know I'm in constant need of help. 
And Jesus hasn't just said, I'm going to judge you for all the things that you've done. He said, I have taken upon myself the burden that you couldn't bear. I have taken upon myself the wrath and judgment of God so that it didn't have to be poured out on you, even though I deserved it, even though you deserved it. Instead, he's taken that upon himself and he says, instead of having to see me as just a judge, see me as one who is readily willing to give you grace, to show you mercy in your time of need. And there are particular times where we are clearly in more need than others. There are times when we're struggling and there are some times when when life is going well, when we are depending on God, when we are following in His ways. And so no matter where you might be today, right now, in your relationship with God, He is there, patient toward you, sitting there, not just an inactive God who says, good luck figuring it out, but a God who has sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to do and accomplish what we could never do and what we could never accomplish. And He says, with confidence, draw near to Him that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Um, James, the book right after Hebrews, James chapter 4, read verses 6 through 10. James chapter 4, starting in verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. We can't draw near to the throne of grace if we don't think that we need grace. To be in a right relationship with God, we have to recognize that He is God and that we are not. That we are a people who are in need and that He is the God who has the supply. But He gives more grace and He stays with us. And even when we fail, He's still patient toward us. I don't think I did it last week, which was like the first time in a few months that I haven't said it. But isn't it amazing? How as we look at how God is described, how Jesus is described, that again, we find those two words together. Look at verse 16. Let us then, back in our Hebrews text in chapter 4, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy, that we may find grace. Our God is gracious and merciful. He's mercious. He's abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. That means He's patient. 
He is ready and willing to listen to your need. He is ready and willing to help you in your time of need. I have found this to be true over and again in my life. And the thing that keeps me from experiencing God's grace is my pride. That's the only thing that keeps me from experiencing God's grace. Is my thinking that I don't need Him or my thinking that I can handle this situation. And that's why it's so great that we can confess those things to one another and recognize and identify with one another. When Nathaniel talked earlier, he, he mentioned that fact. That, that he thought he could do all of this on his own. He thought he could bring people into a good relationship with God on his own work, but he left Christ out of those relationships. You see, and so our job, our mission as a church is to connect to each other in Christ, connect each other to Christ, so that we're connected in Christ as a community, as people together who are living our lives together, who are sharing our burdens, who are continuing to share Christ with one another and saying, I know you've, you've failed here in this instance, but look to Christ. He has a throne of grace and He has open arms, waiting, ready. But He opposes the proud. And so when we have an idea that we can do these things on our own, we miss His grace. And so I pray for us together as a church that we can point each other to Christ. I, I met with a friend earlier this week and a lot of you know our, our background, uh, mine and Brooks and, um, and our story. And it was great because with, with, this, with this man, I was able to share how you know, my story is not that different from his. Um, how, how I can relate to some of the things that he has been through in his life. And, and I think upon hearing that, he, he found some comfort in that. And he, and he said, you know, maybe this is a guy who, who I, I can trust with these details, who has been able to overcome a, a lot of these things, who is still a work in progress by every stretch, but, but who is able to live in light of these things that he has gone through. But I would be remiss... If I left the conversation only there, because I can say all day long, I understand what you're going through. I can say all day long, I've been through what you've been through. But there are differences. And most importantly, the only thing that has gotten me through to the point where I am now and continues to progress me further on is Christ. And so if I don't say to Him, if I don't say to you, that I understand what the hardness of life is like, if I don't understand what, what death is like, if I don't understand what it is like to have hardships, I've got to say over and again, whether or not I understand it, whether or not I've gone through the same thing, I look at this text here this morning. And I say, look, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Jesus gets you. 
Jesus has been there. Yeah, maybe I've been there to some extent, but, but I can't save you. All I can do is say, look at, look at Christ who has saved me. Look at Christ who has gotten me to this point, who has brought me through all of these trials and all of these temptations and all of these issues in life. Look to Him. Consider Jesus because He is the one who is able as our high priest to bring us into a right relationship with God, to keep us in that right relationship with Him, and to continuously offer us grace and mercy to help in our time of need. And so I pray for each of us that we continue to understand that, that He is able to understand us, that He gets us, that He's not so far above us that He doesn't know what it's like, but He has come and proved His love for us. And that yet while we were still sinners, He died for us and He didn't stay dead. But He rose to show that He did have the power over that sin and that death. And that's what we celebrate today on Easter Sunday. That's what we celebrate every single week of our existence on this earth. Together in this church, as far as it depends on me, it's what we're always going to celebrate every week. That God has done something about our sin. And He's done it through Jesus Christ, through His death, through His burial, through His resurrection, through the life that He lived, through the life that He continues to live now in the heavens. And we look forward to when He's going to come back. He's going to make all things new. And all this sin, all this sorrow, all this shame, all this guilt is once and for all going to be taken away. But we can experience some of that now. And so we invite you to do that. Experience that with us. Experience that for yourself and experience it with us together as we share Christ with one another. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you because that's all that we can do. Help us to have hearts that are thankful, knowing that we can't save ourselves that we can't make ourselves right with you. Help us to rest in the knowledge that you have done all that we never could. We thank you for your word that explicitly shares that with us. We thank you for Christ who has passed through the heavens descending to earth to live this life, to understand us who ascended back into the heavens after his resurrection, who continues to live life and to provide us help in time of need. Help us today, help us this week to understand how you are always there to help us. Let us not lose sight of that. Let us not neglect that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.